constraint on opportunity. When our gaze shifts to Port Clinton in the 21st century, however, the opportunities facing rich kids and poor kids today, kids like Chelsea and David, whom we shall also meet in this chapter, are radically disparate. Port Clinton today is a place of stark class divisions where, according to school officials, Wealthy kids park BMW convertibles in the high school lot next to decrepit junkers that homeless classmates drive away each night to live in. The changes in Port Clinton that have led to growing numbers of kids, of all races and both genders, being denied the promise of the American dream, changes in economic circumstance, in family structure and parenting, in schools and in neighborhoods, are surprisingly representative of America writ large. For exploring equality of opportunity, Port Clinton in 1959 is a good time and place to begin, because it reminds us of how far we have traveled away from the American dream. June 1st, 1959 had dawned hot and sunny, but the evening was cooler as 150 new graduates thronged down the steps of Port Clinton High School in the center of town, clutching our new diplomas, flushed with commencement excitement. Not quite ready to relinquish our childhood in this pleasant, friendly town of 6,500 mostly white people on the shores of Lake Erie, but confident about our future. It was, as usual, a community-wide celebration, attended by 1,150 people. Family or not, The townspeople thought of all the graduates as our kids. Don. Don was a soft-spoken, white, working-class kid, though no one in our class would have thought of him that way, for he was our star quarterback. His dad had only an eighth-grade education. To keep the family afloat, his dad worked two jobs, the first on the line at the Port Clinton Manufacturing Factory, from 7 a.m. to 3 p.m., and the second a short walk away at the local canning plant from 3.30 p.m. to 11 p.m. His mom, who had left school in the 11th grade, lived in the kitchen, Don says, making all of their meals from scratch. Every night she sat down with Don and his two brothers for dinner. They got used to eating hash made by frying up everything left in the house with potatoes. The boys were in bed by the time their dad got home from work. They lived on the poorer side of town and did not own a car or television until Don went off to college, by which time 80% of all American families already had a car and 90% had a TV. Their neighbors drove them to church every week. The family had no money for vacations, but Don's parents owned their home and felt reasonably secure economically and his dad was never unemployed. I didn't know that I was poor until I went to college and took Economics 101, Don recalls, and found out that I had been deprived. Despite their modest circumstances, Don's parents urged him to aim for college, and, like many other working-class kids in our class, he chose the college prep track at PCHS. His mom forced him to take piano lessons for six years, but his true love was sports. He played basketball and football, and his dad took time off from work to attend every single one of Don's games. Don downplays class distinctions in Port Clinton. 
I lived on the east side of town, he says, and money was on the west side of town. But you met everyone as an equal through sports. Although none of his closest friends in high school ended up going to college, Don did well in school and finished in the top quarter of our class. His parents didn't have a clue about college, he says, but fortunately he had strong ties at church. One of the ministers in town was keeping an eye on me, he says, and mentioned my name to the university where I ended up. Not only that, the minister helped Don figure out how to get financial aid and navigate the admissions process. After PCHS, Don headed off to a religiously affiliated university downstate, where he also played football, and then on to seminary. While in seminary, he developed doubts about whether he could hack it as a minister, he says, and came home to tell his...